0: Welcome back to another episode of Ultra Hope Girls A Dong and Rumpa Podcast. Today we're going to be continuing on with Ultra Despair Girls and heading in to chapter two. This episode will spoil chapter two, Ultra Despair Girls. So without further ado, I'm Maddie. I'm Marin. I'm Caroline. And we're the Ultra Hope Girls. One. Two. Welcome to the Don and Rumpa Podcast. <laughs>
1: you're on the threshold of an amazing
0: episode showtime in this chapter kamaru and toko meet the resistance including shirakuma travel to toa tower to contact the future foundation and defeat
2: jatoro in a robot battle a lot indeed in that list there yeah a lot happens in this chapter so my first note is that we start out at masaru daimon's funeral supposedly that the warriors of hope are holding for him
1: right and they're they're very quick to monica specifically is very quick to be like he's dead yeah he's dead like to a point where i'm like but is he dead (laughs) because she's defending it so much that i'm doubting her
0: Yeah, because, like, one of them says, I think it's uh, Nagisa, says, like, he's just been captured by adults, and she's like, well, that's practically dead, you know, and so it's kind of an interesting, like, I wasn't really sure how to take that, like, how to absorb his funeral. It's also, it's a weird funeral, because, like, none of them can really remember who they're celebrating the life of, like, I mean, Jotaro remembers for the most part, but Monica says like our last leader, like what was his name? And it's yeah. like halfway through his funeral. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it 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 displays a little about her character to me, which is that she just doesn't care who she works with, like which makes me think she has motivations of her own, which we've kind of seen little seeds of that planted throughout. But yeah, this was a very clear indicator to me that she didn't care about the people she works with, except maybe Nagisa. Yeah, she does elect
0: him as like the new leader. And I have like a a note about that, a reference. He has been very hesitant about this game because he's like, well, well, we need to like build our children's paradise, you know? Like, why are we focusing on this thing that doesn't really matter? Um, But it's interesting that as soon as he is indicated the leader by Monica, he kind of flips his view to support the game wholeheartedly. I think it's an interesting thing to look at when people like gain power how they're willing to overlook things once they have you know once they have that power position and it really reminded me of the episode in Black Mirror of 15 million merit points it's basically spoilers for that episode um, but it's about a person who works in like the lower class of society and he's trying to help someone he likes like escape the lower class and as soon as he's offered a chance to be a part of the upper class he forfeits his original goals completely and like chooses to live an unhappy but comfortable life. And so it's kind of interesting how people are very willing, like human nature is so willing to change their views when they get offered something more comfortable.
1: That reminded me a lot also of American politics in general, like how quickly um, Nagisa was able to throw away his own beliefs for the betterment of like the group. You know, going to Hamilton for a second, um, like Aaron Burr is like despised by Hamilton because he doesn't have a spine or beliefs that he, you know, stands by. He switches his, his opinion based on like who the elect is. But I think this also reveals that Nagisa, deep down, we're already seeing rifts between his ideology and the ideology of all of the other kids, or I'll just say Monica, because the other kids I feel like are kind of following what she's doing. And so like that split is... I don't know. I don't know if that will come up later, but yeah.
2: I had a note about that as well, kind of in a similar vein. Um, At one point, like, Monica starts asking Nagisa if he likes her. Um, She's all like, do you like Monica? And then he is all like, this isn't appropriate right now. Like, we're trying to focus on our goals. Like, why are you asking me this? And um, when he, like, is insisting that that's, like, not appropriate, Monica says you know, Nagisa, that attitude of yours, you're acting just a little bit like an adult. And everyone's like, oh, ooh, no, how dare you act like an adult? Because like their whole thing is that they, they despise adults. They don't want to be anything like adults. And they're about to like attack him for that until Nagisa kind of caves in and like starts acting more childlike. And he's like, okay, Monica, I like like you. And what's interesting, in my opinion, is that I think that Nagisa is by far the most likable out of that entire group. But it's because he's the most mature and he has the most composure out of all of those kids. And it's I just I think there's a lot of irony there in that in a group of kids who despise adults, whose whole goal is to get, get rid of adults and to reject adulthood, the most likable character out of that group is the one who acts most like an adult.
0: I think that Nagisa is the most likable to us as like viewers but I think Monica is the most likable to them
2: um oh yeah yeah for sure
0: you know so like I I don't know that I necessarily agree that Nagisa is the most likable to to the group you know like literally I think it's Monica just says like oh well Nagisa can be the leader now like you were the vice leader go for it and everyone's like yeah like (laughs) that's a great way to decide you know so like they clearly take her word as law even if she doesn't you know do things in a very forceful way and so
2: yeah
1: i think maddie's point was that nagis is the most likable to the audience
2: because yeah he's the most like an adult not the not the group i i did mean like to the audience i might have not not said it clearly. okay though. yeah i guess i just um, because understand okay i i agree that monica is the one that they're all like obsessed with and it's like it's it's i think in chapter one um maybe jotaro says something along the lines of like if monica says it then cats are dogs and like <laughs> black is white and like all this stuff and it's just very much like that kind of reminded me of like 1984 a little bit like big brother says two plus two equals five well uh
1: speaking of books (laughs) 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 there um is a quote in here that I was so excited to talk about last time I like talked about how excited I was to talk about it in the episode before this one um Monica says what is essential is invisible to the eye which is a direct reference to the novel the little prince which we all read in this room in eighth grade it was also a childhood book that i grew up with i really love it but um so yeah those of you who watch my twitch streams will know that i'm bad at pronouncing french but the little prince is by anton de saint exupery help me god Um, yeah, I'm really bad at pronouncing French, but basically it comes from that novel and it's a novel about growing up and becoming an adult. And the book is often interpreted as, um, how it's important to keep the imagination and warmth of a child even as you grow up, hence everything essential is invisible to the eye, imagination, the imaginary worlds you create, you know, and all of that. And that children have a specific kind of wisdom that adults often don't because of that. And obviously it was only natural to reference this novel and Ultra Despair Girls, cause that's like a big part of like the ideology of the kids in a way. Um, but they're twisting this idea against the adults rather than like putting it forward as a slogan for growing up themselves. Um, but the original quote from the book is quote, and now here is my secret, a very simple secret. It is only with the heart one can see rightly everything essential is invisible to the eye and they are not seeing with their hearts (laughs) none of these kids are there they have purposely omitted that first line and monica only quotes the second line which i think is interesting um yeah but yeah that that just so appropriate and i was so like i gained a new respect for the creators of this game that they referenced that novel in this game because i was like it's one of the most international classics about like growing up and adulthood and childhood. So highly recommend it's only like 82 pages.
2: So Caroline, you kind of made me think of something when you talk about like the, um, the special kind of wisdom that kids have. Um Marin and Caroline know this, but I have two little step siblings, um, a girl who is six and a boy who is nine. And sometimes they ask like really, really deep questions or like say these really profound things that I think are like, surprising coming from kids but at the same time they're not because like that's how kids minds work and it um kind of reminds me of a quote from i according to this one source that i see it's from pablo picasso and the quote is every child is an artist the problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up and i think that that's like really like really cute but also kind of sad because I do think that kids have this imaginativeness and this curiosity that gets socialized out of us as we grow up you know like older kids playing pretend or playing like with you know their imaginations and stuff I feel like sometimes is a little frowned upon like they're oh you like you should grow up or you shouldn't do that anymore and it's kind of sad because I think that I think that imagination is is important
1: to speak on that for a second too. Like that's part of why I think I'm an, I think I'm an actor and I, and I'm a writer and an artist because like, yeah, that I don't, I can't imagine my life without like utilizing those things and literally playing pretend for my job, folks. Like, (laughs) like that's how I get away with it is because I can call it a a career (laughs) when it's (laughs) literally just me having, like having fun and like playing pretend for a job. So, you know, and I think that the best performers and best artists are those who haven't like who have stayed young, young in spirit and old in soul. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. I also, I love that you um, like talked about that quote, Caroline, because I remember hearing that in the episode and I didn't immediately know that it was a reference to the little prince when I first played this game. And I was like, what does that mean? So thank you for shining some light on that. Cause I'm like, Oh, that makes so much sense now. I didn't know. Is really? she the ultimate literary girl? Oh. Oh. Um. Oh, okay. Wow. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we out
1: here. Um,
2: I also have another note about like Nagisa and Monica and that kind of like interaction happening. So we said how Monica goes on to talk about how Nagisa is the leader now and like she starts saying that like, oh, we all have really high expectations for you. And is like, okay, yeah. And like, he seems to kind of maybe have a shift in opinion towards, like, the game that they're playing and that kind of thing. And I had a, a question to pose to the group. Do we think that Nagisa, or Nagisa specifically, or even just someone of Nagisa's age, is capable of leadership? Yeah, Yeah. I mentioned it in like a previous
0: episode, but there's a difference between leadership and management. Um, And leadership is pretty much more of a social being viewed as someone who can help guide decisions. Whereas management is more focused, more business, more, you have to meet these deadlines. Like, yeah. And so like, yes, I think he can be a leader. I think it would be harder for him to be a manager, but yes, I'm with Caroline.
1: Because I also think part of, like, what makes leadership, like, when I think of, like, in elementary school, when we would elect, like, leadership positions, <laughs> they're not managing anything, but they're role models for other kids, which is a leader leadership in itself. That's why on elementary school, report cards, teachers are like, this person shows great leadership. I got that one a lot. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So, like, I think that definitely kids are, are capable of that but not management. I think that is a skill that comes with learning and growing up. Whereas leadership is just that natural charisma to lead a group of people to do something basically like me in my like rock club. Do you remember that? Have I ever told you about this?
2: Rock club?
0: Okay.
1: So when I was in fifth grade, I at recess, so I was new to the school. I showed up to this new school and I was like, didn't give a crap what people thought about me. I was like wearing my like black sparkly converse and like cool tomboyish ways. I was like, Hey everybody. And there is this giant rock. It was a quartz rock that was in the roots under a tree on the recess playground. And me and like another girl started this entire like Plan of people. I'm not even exaggerating. Like there were so many people, it was like unmanageable. Called the quartz archaeological dig, and we would every day at recess dig at this rock. And we had paintbrushes to like brush it away. We had like a bunch of different chisels and stuff, and we did this every day. And there were haters who said we couldn't do it, but as the great leader that I was, I said no, everyone. We can do this. We can dig up the rock, and, and like we did it every day at recess. And we had a blog. <laughs>
0: Is this blog still in existence? I mean, look, actually.
2: <laughs> so is that like what you reference when like you're in a job interview and they're like, tell us about a leadership experience. <laughs> you talk about the rock club at elementary
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so that's my leadership skills.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, the note that I had was that I was like a little skeptical about whether someone of that young, young age would be, Truly capable of real leadership because I hear you guys about the difference between like leadership and management, but I don't know. Like, a lot of the I've been in a lot of like leadership classes, and like I'm in a student org that like is focused on leadership, and so we do a lot of like seminars and things like that. And my perspective on it, I guess, from what I've learned, is that it takes like a certain kind of maturity, I think, and emotional intelligence to be like a really effective leader, and so I just wasn't. I'm not sure. that would be an interesting question to pose to the group.
1: As a former child leader, I disagree. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. All no, right.
1: But I kind of do actually, because I think if you're a leader and you're in fifth grade or whatever, you're leading other fifth graders or those younger than you. So you're a good leader to that age bracket.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also kind of like adding on top of that, being a leader doesn't make you a good leader. Like I think even Shirakuma says later, like a great mind doesn't make a great person or a great man. Gotcha. So maybe it's a question of
2: uh effective leadership versus like good leadership.
1: Also look at like Greta Greta Thunberg.
2: Yes. Like she's
1: very young and she I would call her a leader. Like she doesn't lead a nation, but she leads like a movement.
2: Mm, very true. You know?
1: And yeah, she okay. has maturity and yeah. So I I disagree, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that yeah, Maddie's cool. <laughs> no, you're actually you're so right. Yeah, you're so right. That's very valid. My next note is that, and this will probably connect to some things we'll talk about later. But um, it's interesting to see. This is also during Masaru's funeral. I think it's interesting to see how Jotaro blames everything on himself in that scene. He's like, oh, I should have died first. Like this is my fault. Like. He's like, it would be better for me to die like, because I'm the hated one instead of the leader. Yeah, that caught my attention a little bit. And then uh, Nagito just walking in like, I got milkshakes for you guys. (laughs) What was that? Can we talk about that? I honestly think that he's starving to death. And so
0: he made these extremely bad, but like nutrient high in terms of like having like a high fat content. Milkshakes, so that he would have to eat them. Like, I think oh. he made the food bad on purpose, and that was how I took it. But I was like, This is such a strange moment. I know <laughs> that's really real.
2: <laughs> oh, wow! Yeah, that was just, yeah, yep.
0: Nagito comes in, Marin, health care. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, my next note is the um, notebook that we find in the subway that mentions taka and I don't know if you guys found this
0: I wasn't sure if it mentioned our Taka because Taka is a very common name and
2: the last name was different I don't think there was a last name I think there might have been
1: but I, I also was with you and I didn't think it was Taka Ishimaru I thought it was just another person
2: sure yeah it's not specific to Taka necessarily it's just sad because the person writes like I'm only 16 I don't want to die like you know and then we we see they're laying there dead. Um, And it is, I think some of the themes related to Jotaro in this chapter are kind of echoed in this note. Like, the note says, like, I'm sorry that I'm the one who survived. Like, I should have been the first to die. Like, kind of what Jotaro was saying earlier. But this is another thing that I think comes up a lot in this chapter is how the writer talks about, like, how, oh my God, the kids were so cruel. They killed my family. They did these horrible things. And now I want to get revenge. And, like, I hate them. I hate these kids. Like, I hate them so much. I want to make them suffer for what they've done and, like, kill all of them, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, how the tables have turned, you know, kind of like the reactions that these kids are evoking in people are making the adults and, I guess, teenagers to act like. The demons that the kids see them as because they are evoking such hatred in them and then that makes the adults like want to hurt the kids and like I think it's a vicious cycle that I think is echoed a lot in this chapter like I think later on when we meet Haiji he says something similar to that too and so I think I just saw that come up a lot.
1: This is also the first chapter that I think that we see how much that what the kids are doing breaks the adults like in the way you were talking about like before we met Hygie and we're reading his journals in the lockers and I was like oh my god like this is horrifying but I also couldn't be mad at him for feeling that way because it's like he's constantly surrounded by these dead bodies like both sides are horrible to the other and it will never end unless something breaks that cycle that Maddie you were talking about. But yeah, the, the the theme of hatred is a big one in this in this chapter. And I think that like Camaro brings it up a lot. And I, I truly believe that Camaro's personal struggles through the game parallel the kid in focus for, per chapter. Um oh, okay. Yeah, I, I I'm pretty certain that was intentional. I don't know. I mean, but I could just be making that up. But yeah, so and you can tell Like, she, during the boss battle, is, like, I hate you. I hate you so much. And she you've never seen her like that before. Like, she's always the weakling or the, like, optimist. And this is a side that we haven't seen in Makoto, really her brother. But it's unique to her um, in this chapter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And adding on to that, in that boss battle, once it's over, she says, like, Toko's like, wow, like, I, like, wonder what's happening to him. Or, like, is he okay or something? And she's like, he got what he deserved. And like walks out and it is startlingly contrasting her like, you know, her normal personality. And like, oh, yeah, I completely agree, Caroline. Like, and I think you might have mentioned it in chapter one, two about the parallels. I totally see
2: it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then my last note before we get to Jotaro in the subway is when Toko gets whacked by like the falling brick that's like this big, like the size of my torso, and she survives it. Right. So suspension of disbelief, a little bit there, but <laughs> <laughs> Nurse Marin, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs>
0: I have to admit, I didn't even consider the healthcare implications of the moment. <laughs> the, like the design of the moment was so funny to me that I was just laughing. <laughs> she like she keeps like falling over and then like levitating back up. She does not climb up. She just somehow like raises herself from the grave. <laughs> I'm yeah. obsessed with it. <laughs> oh my
1: goodness. <laughs> well, that's her um like animation style in the anime when. She- she turns into genocide jack is what happens as she levitates up so that's like so true
0: before yeah
1: yeah (laughs) you're right
0: oh man i I forgot that i just thought it was so funny Uh. So two Monokuma kids then, like, run out with a TV and um, show us Jotaro. We have a full conversation with him. It's lit. Um, and we find out that we can't leave the city. You know, we kind of assumed that after Yuda, but we get confirmation in this conversation that he is dead. Yuda is dead, which is really sad. I was like, oh, maybe, maybe he's alive. But, I mean, we get pretty much full, con- like, confirmation here. So that was pretty sad. But... One question that I wanted to pose to you guys that like came up in this conversation is that I found a lot of similarities between Jotaro and Toco. Oh, Caroline. Yes. I have a whole slew of talking points with this topic. So yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. The first question that like I kind of came up with was like, what is the difference between Jotaro and Toko's self-deprecation?
1: Well, I think, I think that Jotaro, the way that Jotaro talks about himself, reminds me of Toko in Trigger Happy Havoc. So I think that the difference here is wisdom because Toko has been has more had more life experience and is older. And so has grown out of like this idea of like, oh being hated is so much easier than like being liked because you don't have to worry about people's opinions of you. So that's part of it, I think.
2: I have a whole thing about Jotaro actually, and his like desire to be hated. I didn't necessarily connect it to Toko though. I didn't think about that, but that's, I think that's really accurate. But I'll let you respond first, Marin, because my, I think I might end up going off on a tangent. So I want you, you to get your thoughts in first. Yeah. I actually didn't find too many
0: differences between their self-deprecation, which is super interesting because I agree. I think Toko has matured a lot since trigger happy havoc or even throughout trigger happy havoc, but they both, she's still very self self-deprecating and like with Kamaru, every time Kamaru speaks to her, she's like, you think I'm ugly. Like you think I'm smelly. You, you think I'm stupid. Like, like all these things that are just assumptions. And I, I don't know. I think the key difference to me is that Toko, I don't think Toko wants to believe them. I think she believes it, but doesn't want to. And I think Jotaro believes it and like wants to believe that people hate him because I think the way that he frames hatred and all of that is very, is, is different. It's more like, it's like love to him. And so like they both see themselves as so low, but like, yeah, it's so similar. I was like, why? Uh, yeah, that's really true.
1: I literally have a note that says, and this harks back to what I said about Toko in the last chapter analysis episode about how, like, I think that Biaki and Toko make sense because he is honest with her, right? Like, that is something that she doubts, like, honesty. She doubts honesty. And, like, she doubts Shirakuma throughout this chapter of whether or not he's being honest with the, the gals. Um But, I said, both want to be hated and view hate as love because at least it's honest.
2: Wow. Because if
1: you're being ignored, no one has an opinion of you. But if you're being hated, at least the people who hate you are being honest with you. You know, and, and Toko, I'm speaking to Toko specifically, but like Toko doesn't value relationships where people aren't honest with her. And so that's why she gets annoyed at Kamaru so much when she's like, she'll just say something like, Oh no. And again, sorry, going back again to Shirakuma for a second. And another like thing about this is she talks. says that she's able to call out when people like are virgins and Toko's <laughs> like thought on that is, Oh, that's a great skill because then you can call out all the people who are like saying that they're virgins when they're actually not again. Another example of totally valuing honesty over anything else. She's not slut shaming in that moment. She is literally more worried about people lying about them being virgins than ultimate if moral they're virgins.
0: compass. Like straight up, I was like, oh, anyway. yeah. "Wow!" I heard that.
2: Yeah, that actually leads really well into my thing about Jotaro because of the the hate and hate being hated is better than being ignored. Because Jotaro says, like, you know, please don't ignore me at one point. He says, like, oh, I don't like being ignored, like, at some point in this conversation. And um, he also says, like, the quote that I have from him is, I'm from the hate planet where being hated makes you feel good. And it's easier to just be hated. And that's kind of his philosophy. But it made me, like, sad to hear, especially considering how I think it's Kodoko in chapter one who who talks about he's a latchkey kid to my understanding is a latchkey kid is someone who like a kid who's like left at home alone a lot because their parents aren't around and it just makes me sad because like I think in contrast to Masaru who we learned like last time was probably like beaten by you know most likely an alcoholic parent Jotaro I think was just like ignored and neglect is a type of abuse that's like just as terrible And the sad thing is, this is like something that we actually learned about at one point in developmental psych in a class that I took is that um, a lot of the time for kids and just like people in general, but especially for kids, getting negative attention is way, way better than getting no attention at all. And so like being yelled at or like insulted or even being hit is preferable to being ignored sometimes. And um, that's actually a huge factor in why some kids act out like at home or at school or like stuff like that. And some people will be like, oh, like they, they're they just doing that because they want attention. And and that makes me mad because it's like, yes, they're doing that because attention is a basic human need that, you know, especially for children. And if they're acting out in order to get that attention, it means their needs are not being met. So I, I hate it when people are like, oh, the kid is just acting up for attention. It's like, if they're doing that, that means they're not getting the attention that they need. So I think that Jotaro probably likes the attention that he gets from people hating him because it means that they're paying attention to him. It means that he's not being ignored. And so he says, like, he does these things and he says purposefully creepy and gross things on purpose because it gets a reaction out of people. And um, in my opinion, I mean, as sad as it is from what I've learned from like psych and children and behavior and everything, I think Jatra is a pretty accurate depiction of a child who's been emotionally neglected.
0: I think Toko might be the one who says it. It might be Kamara, but I'm pretty sure Toko says, like, you're crazy. And he says, and if I am, whose fault is it? And I'm like, "Who?" Oh! <laughs> it's kind of, awesome. yeah, it's a little bit of, like, a nature-nurture debate, in my opinion. Um, But it's also, like, what exactly what you were just talking about, Maddie.
1: Going off of that, I sort of made the connection. I need to stop saying sort of. I made the connection between the the appearance of Jotaro's mask and Frankenstein. Here we go. We're back. But a, another conversation about that book, like bringing up a separate point from the last time I referenced this in chapter four of goodbye despair is the monster that he views himself as was fabricated by someone else. Like Frank, like the Frankenstein's monster was m- brought into this world by Victor Frankenstein. So it's his fault that this monstrosity is in the world, not the monsters and it's very similar here I I did a little research and I learned a little bit of Joshua's backstory which I can share yeah so basically the only person brought up is a mother so there's no father figure in the picture and it's implied that the mother didn't want him because it meant that her life was over and she couldn't do things that she wanted to do even though she probably left him at home all the time and neglected him so she could do what she wanted to do um and she was ashamed to show him to anyone and forced him to wear a mask. And this is my own theory. I have a feeling that Jotaro looked a lot like the father of Jotaro and the mother wanted his face covered. So she wasn't constantly reminded of the person who like broke her heart or horribly, you know, abused her in the past. But I connected this with the mother's abuse, making him the way that he he is like Frankenstein's monster.
2: Wow, yeah, yeah, for sure. I was gonna say I I made a little literary reference too, but um, a couple months back for Ultra Hope Girls Book Club, which you can join if you become a patron. So check that out, listeners. But um, we read Carrie a couple months back, Carrie by Stephen King. That story is pretty well known, but like I saw a parallel between Jotaro and Carrie, especially considering the role of I agree with you, Caroline, the mother most likely in Jotaro's life and how, you know, in the story of Carrie, Carrie's mom is extremely abusive. And um, that is a huge question that we discussed in book club is like, how much responsibility does do the people in Carrie's life have as far as like turning her into, you know, eventually she kind of uses her powers and kills a bunch of people. Um, And so that was very, that felt like a strong connection to me, especially considering that this is one thing that I brought up during book club about how like oh well why did Carrie become this like I guess kind of monster of like you know murdering lots of people and I thought in a way it could have been because she didn't know how to be anything else because her mother treated her so poorly that she made her believe that she was worthless she made her believe that she was a monster and that like acting out like that was her way of actually living up to her mother's expectations i think Jotaro could be the same way
1: agreed and to go off of that I I I think I've made this connection on a podcast episode before but maybe I haven't but I've I've often compared Carrie and Toko as well but Toko is sort of like if we're comparing Jotaro and Toko for a second like they have similar pasts like Toko was also abused and locked in a closet for three days and like had a really terrible upbringing and was neglected so like their traumas are very similar but Toko is like someone who has had that trauma but is constantly working and as we see she talks to herself like working to be better um like she in this chapter says she used to read self-help books all the time when she was younger which i think is so funny um but i've compared carrie and toko before because both of them have similar upbringings and both of them have powers within them that they don't understand which adds a layer on top of that but yeah so back to Jotaro, Otoko, and Carrie out here in this triangular mother maternal abuse cycle. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh my god,
0: um... absolutely. And also, like, Jotaro and Toko are both artists, you know, we have little ultimate artist and literally the, you know, ultimate literary girl other than Caroline, you know. But, like, um, (laughs) yeah, it's interesting how they both, like, kind of channel their trauma into their art. And not that art is completely trauma, but I know that a lot of artists find inspiration from things that happen in their lives and, you know, around them. But, It's interesting because Toko chooses to take that neglect in her life and write romance novels, you know, um, whereas Jotro takes his neglect and makes people dioramas.
1: Um. (laughs) The way you said that so simply, matter of factly.
2: I was shook when that video came on. I mean, I was like, that "That is horrific. Like, that's like horror movie level, like, tier of... Horrible.
0: Yeah. That I really hated that. <laughs> I was not comfortable
1: with that. I, I don't the like the only note I have about that is just that it's all it's horrific. There's nothing else to talk about. I also noticed that Jotaro seems to lean toward 3D art forms, which I think is really interesting. He's a little ultimate art, but a lot of what we see of him is like sculpture and like dioramas of dead people. Um but also then connecting back to toko toko's art form is isn't even 2d it's not like visual it's it's imaginative like it's I don't know it's, it's just words no, absolutely. words it's yeah. words <laughs> yeah
0: there's actually there was one time in this chapter that I saw a little bit of 2d art it was only once because I agree his I guess his like primary style is mostly 3d like you said but um, when you're going through some of the rooms with the arcade machines he has painted on the walls it's implied that you know he's created this part of you know the game or like the setting of the game But he's painted the girls in the Warriors of Hope on the walls as princesses. Um, And so he paints Monica as Sleeping Beauty and he paints Kodoko as Cinderella. And so like, I think right now we don't know enough about either of those girls to make connections. But it's interesting because in both of those murals is a little boy with golden blonde hair who's like the prince in both stories. And so, if Jotaro is the one who painted these, it'd be interesting to see if he was imagining himself being like the savior of these two, like girls, like the ones that he knows in his life. And it's so interesting to me because, like, obviously, this is something we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode. But like, you know, his his goal and his idea and what he was like trying to produce in his art was more realistic than he thought, you know. Wow. And so, yeah. I just yeah. yeah his art speaks volumes and
2: like it yeah. really does
0: my next one is Shirakuma.
2: before we before we get there can I throw out a discussion question please yeah it's just a question I had I'm interested to hear you guys's um thoughts on this do you think that being in Kamara's situation is worse than being in the killing game or not
0: I do not think her situation is worse than the killing game because in the killing game you have no idea who your enemy is um given that the every kid could kill you don't know who to avoid whereas in Kamara's situation it is very clear who the enemy is you know um in terms of the Monokumas, like. I think there are still moral implications between both games about like, these are children. And, you know, in the other game, they're like young adults. And so like, there's still that moral kind of area there. But like, yeah, I think knowing your enemy is a very strong advantage.
1: My answer is the same. Yeah, I agree 100%. Because I think part of the thing that makes um, the killing game so awful is the unknowns. Whereas there are not many unknowns in this game the rules are stated they know who the enemy is that's yeah
2: I wasn't sure about my question my answer to that question because I was like okay well on the one hand in the killing game like you don't know who you can trust you don't know who you really who your allies are and you can't escape but you're also like your basic needs are met like you are in a place with like a bed and food and like all those things versus Kamaru is kind of running wild. Like, so I think there's different elements of it, but I agree with the, the unknowns thing. However, I will counter and say, do we think Kamaru can fully trust Toko? If I were in Kamaru's, I mean, we know Kamaru's kind of gullible, but if I were in Kamaru's situation, I wouldn't be 100% sure either if I could really trust Toko.
1: I think that the fact that Toko is an adult makes her more trustworthy because she has the same enemy
0: i think that it's an interesting question but you have to consider who the question is about which is kamaru and she pretty much trusts anyone with a band on their arm Mm -hmm. you know or like anyone from future foundation because those are the people who have helped her Mm-hmm. so far and so she has blind faith in anyone who fits either of those categories yeah so like i i think it's an interesting question of can she trust toko completely well she can and she does but should she trust toko completely that answer i would say is probably no
1: right and going so maddie back to the point you are talking about about like well at least in the killing game all their basic needs were met I had the realization when they, like, went to the the rebellion base and, like, they were sleeping that I was like, how many days have they been awake? If this was me, I would be deceased. (laughs) Like,
2: liberal arts to the
1: core. I (laughs) need sleep. And, like,
2: yeah, anyway. I also, like, what do they eat down there in the sewer? Rats. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) What are they eating? Oh god. They eat Depresso know. espresso.
1: <laughs> For Brecky.
2: <laughs> god.
0: Delicious. My next one actually really ties into that conversation of trust pretty well. And it's about Shirakuma. Just kind of a general question of did you trust Shirakuma when you met Shirakuma? Why or why not? And like maybe more of a general view. Do you think the general public trusted Shirakuma? Why or why not?
2: For me, absolutely not, because I was just like, it's a, it's a bear. I don't trust it. <laughs> I'm simple <laughs> like that. <laughs> <I'm> sim- <laughs> when I was Shira, Shira Kumas out here, like, I'm not like other Manakumas. I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know.
1: I think that honestly, I when we got to the rebellion, that was what I didn't trust because I there were there were elements of that that I was like. This feels weird, and then Shirakuma, like one of the adults you talk to when when you go in there for the first time, is like, "Yeah, like we don't leave here, yeah, and stuff." And then Shirakuma like helps us leave, like lets us go and do this jamming thing or whatever the Toa Tower communication thing. So at that point, I did trust him because I I didn't trust the adults more besides Hiroko.
0: Mm. Yeah, queen
2: Mm. Hiroko. Um, Yeah, what a queen.
0: I had like kind of a weird relationship with Shirakuma in that I did not trust Shirakuma but I really really wanted to because when I play video games I like to be ahead of the the big reveal you know like I I think it's Cool. If I see something coming, like I want to be surprised, but like it's cool if you if you've thought of something. So when I met Shirakuma, I was like, "This is so obviously suspicious that it's probably not." Like I was like, "Maybe like this is the hidden thing. It's not suspicious." But I was so sus the whole time. It's like it's Monokuma with like paint. <laughs> like yeah. When you're walking with Shirakuma he says something interesting. When you're walking around, you see like Monokuma's attacking people and Shirakuma says, how can they be so cruel? And Toko says, they, you're the same as them. And this was really interesting to me because Shirakuma is a Monokuma with a slightly different appearance, right? Different mindset, different values. Toko is the same as Genocide Jack, with a slightly different appearance and different morals and values. And so it was so interesting to see, like, the hypocrisy between that. Yeah. Well,
1: maybe it's that because, like, the exterior is the same, she doesn't know, like... So if I was, like, approaching Toko's body, I wouldn't know what was behind her eyes until I talked to her. So maybe it's, like, she knows that part of her is Genocide Jack. And so part of Shirakuma, because part of Shirakuma is a Monokuma, can't be trusted.
0: Mm, Like it's more of an acceptance type
1: thing. Right, right. That's
2: interesting. Yeah. Because she
1: knows, like, she's like, I can't even trust myself. Maybe it's part of where her self-doubt comes from.
2: I had, I I wanted to say, Caroline, also that I completely agree with you about the, like, the underground resistance being, like, just super weird because, like, It very much felt like a prison to me. I mean, even Toko says, like, when they're in, like, the bed area, they're like, uh, she's like, this is a prison cell. And it's like, it it literally is. And the fact that um, the people say that, like, oh, we're not allowed to leave. Sometimes we sneak out. It's like, uh, what? Yeah, that's weird. I did not like that. And then, um, I mean, Haiji kind of, we can talk about meeting Heiji as well. um, But he kind of, like, kicks them out after he learns that, toko is associated with the future foundation i did not like that and i didn't trust it because i was like oh well all these adults are like down here and they're happy because they're like oh we're safe but are they i mean like it just seems like maybe that's more of what the kids want they want these adults to be cowering in fear in the dark and living in a sewer and you know they can't get back to their normal lives and that doesn't seem like hope to me
1: It, it feels like a very short-term solution. Like, right. because I was thinking, I was like, what are they going to do once, like, the kids take over? Are they just going to live here for the rest of their lives? Like, mole people? Like, right. no. <laughs> and, and literally, I think Toko calls Hygie the mole man. I just made that connection. <laughs> but yeah, like, that is part of it. Also, my first note for Hygie is, it says, bad vibes, man. Yeah. I, I don't trust him. Because as players, we are we are told to trust Future Foundation because it's the people who we know. Yeah. So it's like, it's Makoto, Byakya, Kyoko, Toko, who are all people we trust because and we're told to trust them. I think rightly so. they burned it. And anyone who goes against that, that status quo, I don't trust.
2: I, I had a bad vibe too.
0: And I think it stemmed a lot. This is so strange, but it stemmed so much from his arm injury for me mm. because that I looked at that and I was like, fake. And like, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong here, but like, It was so, I just, I have a problem with characters who say that they've had this horrible injury who are like, I've been out on the front lines and like, here's my proof, but they don't show you the proof like it's wrapped completely. And he says it's crushed flat. Well, it looks pretty round to me. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, like, I I wish there was proof. And I'm not saying he's wrong. Because like, you know, there are people who are faint of heart. And a lot of the people who are around him are like, they've suffered a lot. So maybe they don't want to see that. But for me as an outsider, to be like, Oh, look at this guy, like, he's been through it all and get no proof. It was a little hard to like wrap my head around.
1: Kudos to Amanda Celine Miller for playing Shirakuma and I literally didn't know that it was the same person until we interviewed her.
2: (laughs) Same. (laughs) I was like oh really? (laughs) She
0: voice acted so much for this game like she was having conversations with herself for a lot of
2: it. Yeah. That's wild. I have another note about Hygie. I wanted to make a little connection to something that Masaru said in chapter one during that like final boss battle he said um because he's like the hero of the group right and so he said i'm not like those adults who call themselves leaders but hide like cowards and um i couldn't help but think of that quote from masaru when we meet haiji because he you know masaru says oh the best leaders are the ones that stand on the front lines and like they're brave and everything and I, in a way, he's not wrong because Masaru is putting himself on the front lines and like fighting Kamaru and Toko. And Haiji is like, for instance, an adult who's supposed to be the leader of the resistance is hiding in a sewer. And he seems like he has no plan. He just says, like, stay put, keep quiet. And like, it seems like he's kind of given up. And so I was like, hmm, maybe Masaru was kind of right about that. I think this game brings up the concept of what makes
0: a leader a good leader or a bad leader and like in this chapter specifically I felt more of a like what is courage kind of vibe because it was brought up with Masaru but there was that whole fight with Toko and Haiji where Toko's like you need to get out there and like why are you just wasting away and it was just kind of interesting because then she flip flops later in the exact same chapter and like he's like we need to stay in this hole and you have to go away now and like
2: <laughs> do you like my high G voice <laughs>
1: yeah that's brilliant
2: yeah i don't know it's just kind of interesting and then toko also turns it around on kamaru a little bit as well she's like you too like you need to stop being such a coward like because kamaru's like oh this is great we can just stay here and toko's like um no <laughs> like toko's changed a lot since trigger happy havoc and I appreciate it. And I also noticed in some places in this game that Toko, her stutter disappears right. in some areas. Character development. All right, listeners, we are going to take a quick ad break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back after this.
1: Do we want to um, touch on Hiroko? Let's do it. Yes! She's a nurse! First of all, she's a nurse. <laughs> Jessica, my queen. Jessica Strauss, I
0: love you. Oh, she's a true so, icon.
1: So cool. And like, I just love that this is Hero's mom, but I straight up thought this is Hero's sister for like most of the game. <laughs> 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 Which I think says a lot
0: about her. Yeah, she's so cool. She, uh, and she's voice acted so well. Like, My God. voice, yeah. Yeah, just amazing.
1: Yeah, I don't have much else other than just I really like her as a character. Very likable. I trust
0: her. Same. You know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually really true. Why? Why do I trust her so fast? That's so interesting.
1: I think the wristband brings a certain level of trust for us because we know that they're again they're going to be associated with someone we know from hope speak academy and so because of that we trust them sort of like later chihiro's dad like i never doubted for a second that chihiro's dad was on our side oh rip
2: oh god i'm just gonna cry okay it's all right and that (laughs) was brutal i was like no Yeah, yeah we'll get there but i agree i completely trusted hiroko i was like i love this gal I just have an interesting quote from Shirakuma about like the kids and like the warriors of hope and what they're doing, whether they're starting a war or whether it's a revolution or whether it's just a complete slaughter. And Shirakuma says, um, at one point in like the office or whatever of this underground space, um, he says, Call it whatever name you please. In the end, there's still a mountain of bodies, but by calling it a revolution, they justify it in their minds and become even more brutal. And I thought that was an interesting quote because it could be applied to a lot of things and it makes you think about like it kind of makes you feel like you want to rethink like pivotal like revolutions in history and stuff and like even if we agreed with the ideals of some groups like is the violence that they inflicted ever really justified or is that you know it 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 made me think so I thought that was a good quote.
1: Yeah and just analyzing also like big revolutions that happen where there are still remnants of problems to this day versus there are revolutions that happened that there aren't like the biggest example is like Britain and the U.S. there's no like bad blood it's you know
0: we're over yeah. it <laughs> yeah but like you know <laughs> right under the the bridge. that you know yeah.
1: have more of an impact
0: it kind of reminds me um a theater reference <laughs> who is she uh no. Um, oh. Into the woods. <laughs> it reminds me <laughs> of the song "No One Is Alone" from Into the Woods, where they're talking about like there's like that one part where they're talking about like oh like if you're a giant and these people are killing your family they are in the wrong they are evil so like from their mindset they're correct you know and they're valid and just and all that and this whole chapter reminds me of that like yes from our point of view like the kids are evil they're killing a lot of people but from their mindset they're doing the right thing you know like i i just think it's interesting like to consider, make sure with every person we see who's doing something weird or strange to see it from their lens, because like, no, it might not be morally correct in the end, but to them it could be. And so, yeah, I just, yeah. That reminds me of, I may have talked about this in another episode, but
1: um, with acting and like playing people who might be villains in works of theater or musical theater, often the best interpretations of those characters are ones that humanize the villains rather than making them just bad guys, you know, and that's why I think Into the Woods is so effective, because the villain in that play is the witch, but also, like, not really, and also they all are villains upon themselves, you know, it's it's more that than anything else, and so I think that that speaks a lot to also the villains that we face in this game, which are the kids who we do see their side of things. They are human to us, even though they're doing terrible things, which makes this game even more complicated and even more interesting and topical and thought-provoking than any in the series, I would argue. I, I have. I, I really love the themes in this game. I think it drives home a lot of what is
2: relevant in our culture with children. Woo-hoo. I wanted to also respond to something you mentioned, Marin, about like, The it always being justified in the mind of the person who's doing whatever they're doing. There is something I think that Jotaro says during the kind of boss battle at the end, where I think Toko is like, "Oh, well, you just want to get revenge on your parents who mistreated you," blah blah blah. And Jotaro's like, "Oh no, that's not it. Like, that's not it at all. Like, you totally don't understand." And I think he says something about like, "Oh, we're doing this for the good of kids everywhere." And I think that like. So we've seen, at least so far, from Masaru and Jotaro that they were horribly mistreated by their parents, and so that might apply to all of these five kids. And it's—I think—it maybe goes beyond just revenge. I think it goes to the point of them, like, actually thinking about other kids and being like, "We want to stop adults because we don't want other kids to go through what we went through." And like, that is, I think, a more I mean, I don't want to say, like, oh, that's, like, more thoughtful of them because they're slaughtering people in the streets. Like, that's not really thoughtful. But but you know what I mean, right? Like, they, I think that they're, I think that they are thinking of other kids. They're not just thinking about themselves. So
1: there are a lot of references to the sixth sense in the second half of this uh, chapter, which I was, like, kind of surprised that, like, Varen didn't bring up because when we were, like, 15 years old we watched it all together once at a movie night and so just warning i'm gonna spoil the sixth sense right now it's a very famous plot twist so skip ahead like five minutes if you don't want spoilers about to spoil the movie um yeah the big plot twist is that the kid in the movie can see dead people i guess that's not really the plot twist of the film and that's established in the first 10 minutes but whatever anyway um So there are a couple of just direct references to this, which is like, there's a manga called The Sixth Sense that we find on the street. And then Kamaru says that she can sense dead people and talks about like how she can sense ghosts, which we later find out is like, probably not legitimate. But I I think that was definitely done in reference to this film. 100% this
2: movie is super famous. So we meet Chihiro's father and he is this adorable man. Oh my goodness. Like, I just want to give him a hug but like the writers of the game, they, they just want to hurt us. You know, they just want to hurt us. That's all. I mean, like, I feel like we all saw it coming. We all saw it coming. He was going to die. Like you meet him and you're like, Oh, this guy's pretty cool. And then he starts to like grow on you and he fixes the elevator. And then he's like, I need to thank you guys. Like I'm finally starting to see hope. And then that second he gets eaten by a beast, Monokuma, it like, you know, I didn't expect him to survive at all. He was in the game to like help them and fix the elevator and make you sad. And after he'd served his purpose, they killed him off, you know, and it's like, okay, but still I was so sad. And I I think it was the same thing with Yuta. Like he literally exists in the story to demonstrate what happens with the wristband and make that real. And once he serves his purpose in that way, he dies. You know, they, they're meeting these allies along the way who help them in small ways, but it, I think it also emphasizes that, like, this story is, this is Kamaro and Toko's story. This is their journey, not anyone else's. And these people that they're meeting along the way are helping them in these small ways, but they can't, they can't go with them.
1: That's true. And it's almost like they're, like, cursed, like, that whoever they team up with is gonna die. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I I also will say, like, I, I don't, I don't actually remember, so I'm genuinely, like, wondering, like, who, if this is a theme, every chapter where we meet someone and then they die, like from the past. I, I, I don't know, you know, because it's it's been too long since I've seen this game. But it's like Chekhov's person. Like as soon
0: as they're introduced, they die. Like, in the next, <laughs> like two minutes. This game makes it really hard to trust anything good that comes around, you know, because it's right. like it's probably gonna get ripped from you in about five seconds.
1: All right, finally the boss battle.
2: This was, I think Jotaro is, his story is interesting. and I think he's one of the most interesting of the kids, for sure. And the one thing that I, I guess maybe, maybe I missed some references or some connections, but like, I was curious to hear what you guys thought about Jotaro being like the priest of the group because, oh, Caroline has something to say because I saw the hero themes in Masaru for sure. But like with the priest themes in Jotaro, I was having a harder time, like, finding where that that came out
1: yeah so I think that Jotaro's like form of priest is supposed to sort of juxtapose his appearance so like he looks dirty and like wears this weird baggy mask and like all these things and I think that the intention is that he's supposed to be the opposite in appearance of a priest and I know I mentioned last episode for analysis that I would talk about the archetypes of all of these kinds of things. This is the only one where there's not like a direct like priest archetype, but the priest is a subsection of another archetype, so like I can talk about that, which is uh the the innocent. Is the archetype so i'll talk a little bit about the sub the archetype like umbrella archetype with the saint as a sub archetype so like not quite perfect but like pre-saint you know similar vibe rooney's the innocence motto is free to be you and me and so they find freedom in being genuinely themselves which Jotaro literally brings up because he's like i if i'm hated then i can literally be myself all the time and then i don't have to care what other people think about me the core desire is to get to paradise and the goal is to be happy and their talents are faith and optimism which i think is really really interesting considering like if we look at jatra as a priest as someone who believes in something like above them that is faithful back to maddie's connection with carrie how the mom you know instilled like christianity into carrie and then in a very messed up twisted way. And then I, I don't know if Jatra's mother was a Christian or not, but you know, connecting there, but yeah, the priest is definitely very interesting. And I think that a lot of the theme of the priest is underlaying rather than just very obvious Which, again, once his mask is removed, we see this angelic figure. This figure of, like, something that could could be an angel. Could be beautiful. Even though, actually, angels, biblical accurate angels look terrifying. Um,
2: Yeah, (laughs) and and isn't it supposed to be like, if you look at them, your eyes burn out of your head? Right. That's exactly what Jotaro says will happen to people who look at him if he takes his mask off.
1: So, Jotaro is a biblically accurate... (laughs) 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 <laughs> like, this year for Christmas, we're going to have a biblically accurate angel on the top of our
2: tree. And it's like this, like... <laughs> it's got, like, six eyes and it's got, like, all these like, arms. It's, d- despicable
0: looking. It's so funny. Oh my God. I think That's also funny. it would be easy to say that Jotaro is not an optimist, but I would argue that he is. Because if you think, again, in the way that he frames how he thinks... His goal is to be hated. And he's constantly like, you hate me now, right? Right? You hate me? Do, do I make you uncomfortable? And he's like always hoping that it'll be like right this time or right. It, you know, yeah. I, so I completely see that. That's so what in the paradise thing? Ah!
1: <laughs> I scream. I This also brought up a theme that I think is very present in this chapter, which is beauty and ugliness. Like, it's discussed with Toko how she says, like, if you're ugly, don't try to hide it by wearing makeup. Like, just, like, be yourself, and like, <laughs> you know, which she means well. Like, I get what she's saying there, you know, Um, and, like, why we find what is ugly ugly and, like, why, you know, Jotaro's mother, I mean, like, I have my theory of that she, he looks like her, his father, but why he was ugly or maybe his beauty was so immaculate that it was embarrassing that he was so much more beautiful, like a Snow White
2: situation, <laughs> like where he was more beautiful than his mother or I don't know. I just, I just wanted to say this because there there is a good chance. I think that a lot of our listeners probably watch My Hero Academia. I think it's similar, similar fan bases there, but um, Caroline, I, I think I agree with your theory. I had that question actually, as far as like, why did Jotaro's mom probably most likely make him wear that mask all the time and convince him that he was horribly disfigured or whatever. I like your theory, Caroline. I think I agree with that now. I think it's, there's, yeah, maybe he, he looked like the father and the mother, you know, did not want to see that. And that reminds me a lot of Todoroki from My Hero Academia, who, you know, it looks, half of him looks like his dad, half of him looks like his mom. And his dad was like, super abusive or whatever and so his his mom you know saw the fiery half of Todoroki and just despised it so much that she poured a hot tea kettle over his face and burned that side of his his face So it makes me really sad um so it, it's interesting that this time in this boss battle the kids start booing for Jotaro and they cheer for Kamaru and Toko and Jotaro's like, oh wow, they really hate me. Ugh. Like and um so that's interesting. I think we're seeing a little bit of um a rift open up.
0: I disagree. I think the kids are doing exactly what Jotaro wants. He wants to be hated, and so they're hating oh, okay. him. Right, that's like, what I thought too. Yeah, like okay, I think okay. it's actually like a sign of love to Jotaro Interesting.
2: Because yeah. I took that as like maybe the, the helmet kids are actually sick of the game. I don't know. Then a bombshell gets dropped when Jotaro mentions Big Sis Junko. I
1: have a yeah. connection for something that Jotaro said earlier, which is on the broadcast thing that he does, he talks about, like, how his name always brings a curse, and it remind, that instills in us, like, the power that names have, and then when that name is dropped later, it's it all kind of comes for full circle for me, because it's like, like, Junko is almost like Voldemort, like, in a way, like, yeah. where it's like you know, the name has so much power with it.
2: And then makoto appears at the end they finally get to the top of the tower and Lil makoto appears on that computer and toko really really seems like she does not want to be in contact with future foundation not sure why but she seems very much not into it and like when makoto starts appearing on the screen she like runs away she's like oh don't look at me (laughs) so that's a little weird but yeah we out here
1: that is interesting i also wonder if it's like does she think like Kamaru won't trust her anymore because she didn't tell her about Makoto. Like, I, there were a lot of questions that came up in that moment for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, that yeah. That kind of thing.
0: I was very surprised that she put in her password correctly. Um, because, like, she's very clearly, like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to contact, like... I mean, yeah, she did not want to do that at all, but she still inputs the password correctly. So, yeah, I I was super curious, like, why, you know, because, like, she clearly doesn't want to, but
2: not to the point where she'll prevent it. Even though she has tried to prevent it up to that point, but maybe she was just like, wow, we just fought an entire, like, child's robot and, like, went through all these things and, like, Chihiro's dad died. And, like, maybe at that point she feels like, okay, we've been through so much to get here. Let's just go through with that. But I don't know. We'll have to find out.
1: Next time.
2: Next time. I <laughs> <Girl. Girl. laughs>
1: oh We should have God. gotten Kyle to like, reco- oh my Literally? God, that was a missed opportunity. No. <laughs> All right, everybody. Let's move into our amended Bed, Wed, Behead for season three, which we come up with three scenarios and three characters, and we figure out what character we want to fit each scenario. So today our three scenarios are, one, to sing a karaoke duet with, two, to take home to Thanksgiving dinner, and three, to go camping for a week with. And the characters we will be choosing from are Jotaro, Chihiro's dad, and Hiroko.
0: I actually have my answers. Go for it. <laughs> okay, so easiest one for me, I would take Chihiro's dad home for Thanksgiving dinner. He would be such a sweetie. He'd share old stories about his Thanksgivings with Chihiro. uh oh, it warmed my heart. I would sing a duet with Jotaro. Um, his voice is very melodic when he speaks and so I can only imagine how great he will be at karaoke and um I would take Hiroko camping for a week because I would not trust Jotaro to camp with me for a week he'd probably kill me and Hiroko would be cool she'd probably
2: pull out some cool survival tricks so I have the same answers as you (gasps) and I have the exact same answers I said I would absolutely go camping for a week with Hiroko I think she's the most interesting and like she's the one I'd be able to like connect with most and like have the most interesting conversations with. And she's just like super chill. And yeah, it'd be fun. Um, I would absolutely take Chihiro's dad home for Thanksgiving. He seems like a sweetheart. He seems very polite and kind and yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool. And then I would perform a duet with Jotaro because I don't really want to go camping with him for a week. Don't trust that. And if I brought him home for a Thanksgiving dinner, my family would be extremely concerned. Um, <laughs> it would probably not go well. And I, <laughs> I wonder what, I, I really want to try to, f- maybe Caroline could do this because she's the voice actor, but like try to do like a, an impression of what Jotaro would sound like singing. <laughs> Wait, give me a song. Of, give me a song.
1: Um.
2: Uh. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but he would lag behind the tempo. You because his speaking voice is so slow. <laughs> to so <laughs> <you. laughs>
0: Happy birthday. Can you imagine him at Thanksgiving dinner? He'd be like, Does turkey ever taste like Band-aids to you and everyone would be like, What? <laughs> it be and like, doesn't he make the comment about chicken skin? Yes.
1: Earlier. Like <laughs> yeah. classic. Right. Carolyn, you right. got? I have the exact same answers. Jotaro Yay! would be the best duet partner in the world. I would love it. I would take Chihira's dad to Thanksgiving dinner. To bring up another point, I think Chahiro's dad and my dad would get along really well. They're both just wholesome dads, and I think that they would get along really, really well. Similar interests there. And then... Um, I would go camping with Hiroko. I think that she has a lot of skills, and I think she would not get tired of hiking. Whereas I feel like um, Chihiro's dad wouldn't be as like because I was debating between those two, between the dinners and the the campings. And I think that Chihiro's dad might not have as many skills in that sort of regard as um, Hiroko does. Um, also, Hiroko is kind of kind of pretty. You know, maybe we'd hit it off. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to an episode of Ultra Hope Girls, a Rumpa podcast. Let us know, who do you want to go camping with? Leave us a message on Anchor. You can contact us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're Ultra Hope Girls podcast everywhere. You can also check out our personal Twitter to see what we're up to. And if you like what you hear today, make sure you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That means the world to us and it helps out the podcast so much. And thank you, thank you for your support in advance. And if you want to look for other ways to support us, we have a Patreon. The lowest tier is just $2 a month and you get a bunch of cool bonus content. Link is in the episode description. And with that, I think we're done for today, but we'll see you all later. Bye! Bye.
2: Leave us your Jotaro impression. <laughs>